Good morning. It's really good to be worshipping here with you again today. Life-giving God, we gather to praise and worship you for your great goodness, for coming among us in Jesus, for still being with us through the power and presence of your Spirit, for your grace that sustains us and the promise of new life that inspires us. Early in the morning on that Easter day long ago, when the sun was rising near the garden tomb, Mary met the one who knew her name. Early in the morning still, whatever our situation, we're discovered and touched by the one who calls us by our names. Jesus, Son of God, we come to praise you. For the sun is risen and life comes out of death and love overcomes fear. And there is a new world. Everything looks the same, but everything is different. The familiar and the certain have passed away with the darkness. And beyond the old stone walls, a new path, a new life is waiting. Come among us now with your life-giving spirit and renew us. Come to the people in their homes around us. Come to the people of the city, to the hungry, to the homeless, to the stranger, to the bereaved, to those who are lonely or anxious about the future. Come to us with your forgiving mercy, that we may be healed from any burden of shame or guilt that harms us and holds us back. We may be liberated from our brokenness and fragility from all our faults and failings, released into the new future that is our desire and our destiny within your providential grace. So free us from all that restricts us. Take us out from here with the message of the gospel as people who trust in your loving purpose and in your promise that we too shall share in the resurrection life. For you are not only with us here, you are waiting for us there. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first reading this morning is from Acts 3, verses 12 to 16. When Jesus saw the people, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, Why are you surprised at this? And why do you stare at us? Do you think that it was by means of our own power or godliness that we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has given divine glory to his servant Jesus. But you handed him over to the authorities and you rejected him in Pilate's presence, even after Pilate had decided to set him free. He was holy and good, but you rejected him. And instead you asked Pilate to do you the favour of returning loose a murderer. You killed the one who leads to life, but God raised him from death. And we are witnesses to this. It was the power of his name that gave strength to this lame man. What you see and know was done by faith in his name. It was faith in Jesus that made him well, as you all can see. 
Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, very end of the chapter, 24, verses 36 to 48. While the two were telling him this, suddenly the Lord himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were terrified, thinking they were seeing a ghost. But he said to them, Why are you alarmed? Why are these doubts coming up in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet and see that it is I myself. Feel me and you will know, for a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you can see I have. He said this and showed them his hands and feet. They still could not believe. They were so full of joy and wonder. So he asked them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of cooked fish, which he took and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the very things I told you about while I was still with you. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the writings of the prophets and the Psalms, had to come true. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, This is what is written. The Messiah must suffer and must rise from death three days later. And in his name, the message about repentance and forgiveness of sins must be preached to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Amen. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. As I grow older, I feel, I, perhaps like some of you, that I've been attending a disconcerting number of funerals over recent months. And despite the signs of new life all around us, the days getting ever longer and lighter, the lovely spring flowers in bloom. Maybe it's because of the time we're in beyond Easter, but I seem to be reflecting more and more about mortality. Some of you may have heard the Reith Lectures a few months ago or read the excellent book on which they were based, entitled Being Mortal by a Harvard surgeon, Atal Gawande, in which he reflects very interestingly and challengingly on issues of life and death because he's exploring the medical and emotional rather than theological issues. He doesn't really have anything to say about what happens when we die or after we die, the notion of eternal life, the possibility that somehow life goes on after death. But in our readings this morning, We're brought face to face with the idea, well, we believe the reality of resurrection. There's no getting away from it. In the Apostles' Creed, which is still, despite all attempts to devise contemporary affirmations of faith, the Apostles' Creed is still the most generally accepted and used statement of what Christians believe. We say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. 
And at funeral services, almost invariably in committing the body of the dead person to be cremated or buried, the officiating minister will say something like, in the sure and certain hope of resurrection to eternal life. And strikingly, in his first letter to the young church at Corinth, Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith is futile. Well, what does all this mean? How are we to make sense of this? Is it really relevant? And if so, how? To our lives day by day. In that passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul goes on to deal with the question, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And we might add questions like, where are the bodies? If they really are raised from the dead, where are they? And to what extent does individual consciousness and intelligence survive death? If our lives are going, going to be on, going to go on after death, in what sense are we going to be aware of things? What kind of person will we actually be? Rather dismissively, Paul calls the person asking such questions, again in 1 Corinthians, fool. And he goes on to speak soaringly of mystery, glory, immortality, imperishability. He doesn't try to give any specific practical details, but he does give very clear instructions as to the implications, what this means in terms of how we should lead our lives when he says, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord. Maybe it is foolish, but it's perfectly natural, it seems to me, for us to be curious and to want to know how the resurrection could have happened can happen. After all, we live in an age of technological advancement where empirical evidence sometimes seems the be-all and end-all, and the boundaries of scientific and medical knowledge are being pushed back all the time. Space exploration, large hadron colliders, genetic (coughs) studies, and all the other projects and initiatives that we hear so much about. Nonetheless, there are some things that may ultimately be beyond our understanding, some points at which our disbelief needs to be suspended. As Hamlet said, there are many things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And St. Anselm, the 11th century theologian, said, I believe in order to understand. In other words, we should not expect to be able to understand or make sense of all the mysteries. We shouldn't expect of the answers to all the big questions before we embark on the journey of faith. On the contrary, it is by living out the faith, by following Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, by trusting in God's grace, by getting on with the business of life, that we come to understand and experience more and more of the fullness of life, the deep 
and lasting contentment and peace that is God's purpose for each one of us, the desire and destiny of every human heart. We may not be able to understand the hows or even the whys of Easter, but we are able to grasp something of the what's. Even if we have lingering questions about why there are different versions, different accounts, even different emphases in what the Gospels tell us about the appearances of the risen Jesus, even if we find it hard to make sense of the difficulty that the disciples apparently had, according to the biblical accounts, in recognizing Jesus at first, nonetheless there's a basic consistency there reinforced by the witness of the church and the experience of Christians down the centuries. Clearly, something of earth-shaking importance really happened. And the gospel writers, in their different ways, were struggling and striving to stress the reality and the significance of this. And that's why in the story, the disciples had to see and touch Jesus' wounded hands and feet. Why in both John and Luke's Gospels, they eat together. After all, there's nothing more basic and real than that. Because this is not about an ethereal spirituality, nothing nebulous or abstract. This is about down-to-earth, nitty-gritty reality. Something really happened that meant things would never be the same again turning the world upside down, transforming lives. And our gospel reading from Luke, as we heard, ended with Jesus' message to his disciples, you are witnesses of these things. That was a challenge and a call to them with a striking relevance for us too in our own times. Witnesses not only to the promise of life beyond death, but to what has been described as a truth that dazzles, not a mystery or conundrum to be solved, but a reality in the here and now to be experienced, understood, and affirmed gradually. Some of you may have heard of the American minister and scholar Eugene Peterson. His version of the Bible, the message, is very popular for its use of contemporary language. It may be a little American at times, but it's very accessible and fresh and strikingly direct and challenging. On the recommendation of one of my nieces, who's also a Church of Scotland minister, I've recently been reading a book Eugene Peterson wrote a couple of years ago. Its title is Practicing Resurrection, a conversation on growing up in Christ. And I find this book immensely helpful, and I'm going to read a short passage that sums up the insights he offers. The book itself runs to 270 pages or so, but there's less than 100 words here, so don't worry. Resurrection, he says, resurrection is not a dogmatic truth that we spend the rest of our lives trying to understand. Resurrection is not a behavior that we can perfect through carefully managed ascetic techniques. Resurrection is a practice in which we engage as we trust and obey. There is no other way as the Spirit, God's empowering presence, 
brings the life of the Trinity alive in us in Jesus' name. Resurrection is not a one-off event. It's a continuous process completed after death of absorbing or being absorbed into the very being of God in the eternal now. The practice of resurrection is not a do-it-yourself self-help project. It is God's project, and God is engaged full-time in carrying it out. Our role is to receive the gift and respond to the calling. Fifty years or so ago, after I'd finished at St. Andrews University and went to Edinburgh to start work as a civil servant in the Scottish office, quite a time before I started formal training for ministry 15 years later, I got involved in helping regularly at a youth project started by some of the churches in the West End of Edinburgh's city centre. It was a beat club running late on Wednesday, Friday and Sunday nights. Live, loud music, 200 lively young people of all backgrounds, shapes and sizes. It was very exciting, utterly demanding, at times risky and thoroughly life-changing for many of the people involved and all the spin-offs that were generated. Looking, and I could say a good bit more about it because it was very formative within my own life. Looking back on it now, I can see that we were practicing resurrection, although we wouldn't have been so presumptuous or theologically literate as to realize it at the time. And interestingly, I've never really been a fan of beat or any other kind of pop music, but I kept going back and going back. And the churches that sponsored the project all had youth fellowships. And from time to time, those of us who were running this project approached the youth fellowships to try to recruit more helpers. But more often than not, we met the response, not that they didn't have time or it wasn't their scene, but their faith wasn't sure or strong enough. Well, ours wasn't either. But they wanted to get their beliefs a bit more sorted out before becoming involved. But practicing resurrection is about a leap of faith. It's about pushing the boat out without having all the answers, about living out the faith, about opening our lives to the extravagant grace of God. And it begins and ends in ordinary places, the daily, often humdrum routine of our everyday lives. It enables us to live in God's grace resiliently, hopefully, through the darkest and most difficult situations. But as we do this, as we go on, our understanding increases. Our faith deepens the more we love God and one another, the more we do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God, the more we manage to approach life from a glass-half-full standpoint, the more we're ready to trust God, however risky and apparently uncertain it may be, as our pilgrimage goes on, the more we experience the reality of the promise of new life. They say that practice makes perfect. Now, whether that's literally true or not is perhaps debatable, but whether we're talking of cooking, gardening, home decorating, knitting, woodwork, or whatever, even studying, playing music, or leading worship, 
most of us will know from experience that the more one tries, the more one does, the more improvement tends to be seen in our performance. I've always been very keen on playing and then more, more recently watching cricket. I stopped serious cricket a long, long time ago. But I remember from then that my best cricketing form came when I practiced most regularly and diligently. Though I'm not quite so sure that holds true for my do-it-yourself record. But what's certain is that perfection will not be attained without practice. To put it more biblically or theologically, grafting together two texts from St. John's Gospel, doing the truth consistently is assuredly the way towards fullness of life or in more secular terms, as the late lamented Terry Pratchett said, goodness is about what you do, not who you pray to. Although we might want to add that for those who seek to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, the praying cannot be separated from the doing, and both are intricately connected parts of practicing resurrection Yesterday afternoon, I was at Hamden for the Scottish Cup semi-final with our older son and his two daughters, who are Keen Hibs fans, so they're a bit disappointed by the result. It's a while since I'd been at a football match, and some of the supporters' songs were new to me, but I recognized one tune that was familiar. It was one of the trendy religious songs of these heady days in the late 1960s and early 1970s. We sang it often around the youth project, and some of you will know it well, Lord of the Dance. I was a little surprised to find it's not in Baptist praise and worship, although two others of Sidney Carter's are. Lord of the Dance isn't maybe used quite so much now. Maybe it's been a little bit oversung over the years. But the last verse goes... They cut me down, and I leapt up high. I am the life that will never, never die. I'll live in you if you'll live in me. I am the Lord of the dance, said he. And that is what practicing resurrection is all about. Amen. Thanks be to God. Several times during our prayers for others, you're invited to make the response, your kingdom come. So when I say the words, through our lives and by our prayers, you can respond, your kingdom come. So let us pray. God of love, as we come to you with our prayers for others, we acknowledge that it is easier to talk about resurrection than to practice it. We confess that often we have succumbed to fear and doubt, just as the disciples did long ago. So we pray first for ourselves. Burst through our doubt and fear as you did in Galilee 2,000 years ago. And help us to live each moment of our lives as people of resurrection and of hope. 
or even despite our doubt and fear. Help us to be witnesses to the possibility of new life. Lord, through our lives and by our prayers, your kingdom come. We pray for all who in this very building practice resurrection through the work of AA and NA, accompanying those whose lives have been taken from them by drug or alcohol addiction, and who go with them on their journey from despair to hope. Lord, through our lives and by our prayers, your kingdom come. We pray for those of our congregation who practice resurrection through their work with Emmaus, helping people who are homeless and excluded to rediscover life in all its fullness. Lord, through our lives and by our prayers, your kingdom come. We pray for those of our congregation who practice resurrection through their involvement with Elpis, creating a new community in which vulnerable young women can find their place and build a brighter future. Lord, through our lives and by our prayers, your kingdom come. We pray for those of our congregation who practiced resurrection by visiting those whose lives have been limited by old age or chronic illness, and by their friendship, affirm and welcome them into that greater community, which is your family. Lord, through our lives and by our prayers, your kingdom come. We pray for those in this city who open their homes and offer hospitality to asylum seekers and refugees so that while we cannot give them back the lives they have lost, we can at least offer them hope of a new life as part of this community. Lord, through our lives and by our prayers, your kingdom come. And we pray for those in this country who affirm the value of each and every life around the world by their support for Christian aid or BMS or leprosy mission or tear fund or any of the agencies who work in places where lives are blighted by natural disaster or structures of injustice. Lord, through our lives and by our prayers, your kingdom come. And we pray for those in our world who work for peace and reconciliation, who risk their own lives in order to restore communities which have been destroyed by violence. Lord, through our lives 
and by our prayers, your kingdom come. These prayers we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Go forth in hope. Keep alive the faith and the blessing of God, Creator, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you all now and evermore.